Whether you're watching from home or you've decided to join us in person, I'm glad you've decided to make church part of your day today. Because today we're going to examine the behavior of a few people in Scripture, which gives us insight into what makes for a great church experience. Have you ever wondered how two people can walk out of church on a Sunday morning with two totally different experiences? Across America today, two people, people will walk out of the exact same church service, right? And one will say, that was awesome. I cannot wait to share that message with others and serve others and love others in Christ's name. And the other person will say, ugh, that was the longest hour of my life. You know, how is that possible? How can two people walk out of the same service with such different viewpoints? Well, today we're going to examine a passage in Matthew that helps clarify the attitude behind each of those examples. In essence, what we're going to look at today and try to uncover is the secret to a great church experience. Now, I know some of us have been Christians for a long time. And a few of you have probably been Christians longer than I've been alive. And some of you have it figured out, and some of you don't. Because after all, coming to church on Sunday morning is not what makes us a Christian. Being brought up in a Christian home, raising your hand on a Sunday morning, walking down the aisle, signing a membership card, all of those things do not make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is what you believe about Jesus Christ. It's having faith in him, worshiping him, following him as your Lord. But sadly, and we've all seen this, right? Sadly, being a Christian doesn't necessarily mean we're going to love this thing called church. The very thing in Ephesians 5 that Christ gave his life for. So we've got to remember the church is very important to Jesus. It's more important to Jesus than sports. It's more important to Jesus than politics. It's more important to Jesus than your job. Jesus calls the church to be his bride. That's how important the church is to Jesus. And if we're not careful, coming to church can become a drudgery. It can become a tradition. It can become an obligation, which is why we need to explore some of these attitudes that we're going to find in Scripture this morning. And it begins by asking this question to ourselves. Why are you here? Take a second. In your mind, fill, fill in the blank. I am here right now because are you here to get something? Or do you want to keep up an appearance? Did you come because you have to and you just had no choice in the matter? Are you looking to receive something or are you looking to give? In short, do you desire to worship Jesus Christ because of everything he's done for you or is there something else? you're looking for. And in Matthew 20, it's very clear that Jesus should be the center of our worship. So let's look at Matthew 20. We'll start at chapter or verse 17, and we'll see how this unfolds before us this morning. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the road he said to them, so let's stop right there just for a second. And let's kind of stop and see where Jesus is in his life and his ministry so we can set the proper context. In this passage, Jesus is heading up to Jerusalem. Now, no matter where you are in Israel, at some point in your journey, if you're going to Jerusalem, at some point you're going to be going up. 
And here's a picture of three people approaching Jerusalem on foot. So does this picture give you an idea of what it looks like to go up to Jerusalem? Maybe this picture gives you in your mind a little, bit, little better mental picture when you read a scripture, a chapter and verse like Matthew 5, 14, where Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. A city set on a hill. He's talking about Jerusalem. He's referring to the Jews and reminding them that God put them there for a reason. And just like us, God has put us here in Chatham for a reason. They weren't supposed to be hiding their light under a basket. The Jews were not supposed to be blending into the culture around them. And we're not either. Instead, they were intended to be a shining light to the nations around them. And Jerusalem was supposed to be a place where God was worshipped. So let's do a, a quick little exercise together. Let's all turn in our Bibles, if you have your Bibles, or your phone. If you have a phone app, or if you brought your Bible, open it up, please, and find Psalm 120. Find Psalm 120. Now, we'll go back to Matthew in just a minute, but starting at Psalm 120 and going all the way through Psalm 134, do you notice how Psalm 120 begins? Anybody want to shout that out? Or what's the title for that psalm? Yeah, there I heard it, a psalm of ascent. Now go to 121. There it is on the screen, Psalm 120, a song of ascent. 121, it should say it's very similar in your Bible or on your phone. It's a psalm of ascent. Jonathan read that today during praise time. Psalm 122, same thing. 130, 123, same thing. 124, same thing. All the way to 134. This is a group of psalms from 120 to 134 called the Psalms of Ascent. So the question is, why and what do they mean? Well, they're called that because in the Old Testament law of Moses, three times a year, Jews living in, Jerusalem, in Israel were required to go to Jerusalem to observe a religious feast. And we saw how Jerusalem was on a hill. So as they traveled or as they ascended, they sung these psalms. And they sung these psalms of ascent to get their minds right and their hearts focused on God. To remember that God is the source of their strength, that God is their protection, he's their safety, God is their hope. Just like we do every Sunday morning, just like we finish doing. And I thank the praise team so much for leading us every Sunday morning in that and getting our hearts and minds right as we worship God. They sung these songs of ascent as a testimony to God that we're going to Jerusalem not for ourselves. Right? We're going there to worship you this Passover. It was done to honor God. And honestly, for us, going up to church every Sunday morning should be the same thing. We should be gathering for the sole purpose of worshiping and honoring God. So if you come out of tradition, you know, most likely you're going to be bored. And if you come to get something, chances are you're not going to find it. And if you come to hear a particular preacher, chances are at some point he's going to let you down. But if you come to worship the God of heaven, then you're on the right track. Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. One of those three special feasts he was attending, it was Passover time. And that was a time of year where lambs were slaughtered in Jerusalem. So they remembered the exodus and God's amazing act of redemption. 
Only this Passover, it was going to be different. And we all know that, don't we? That God himself was going to provide the lamb to redeem the world. In the book of Matthew, which we're in, right now there's a, there's a dramatic change at chapter 20. See, for the first 20 chapters of Matthew, it covers 33 years of Jesus' life at a pretty fast pace. Right From his birth to his baptism to his ministry, 33 years condensed in 20 chapters that go by like a blur. But from this point on, these last eight chapters, it slows down. And guess what? It covers 30 days of Jesus' life. Matthew wants us to know the details because Jesus is going to Jerusalem not to claim the crown like many thought the earthly kingdom, but he's going there to give his life for us. So it's time for us to stop and to do another little mental exercise together this morning so we keep sharp. And it's, this is a dangerous one I'm going to ask you to do. But I'm going to ask you to close your eyes in just a minute. And I know I'm taking a risk that some of you are going to take a, a quick little nap, but let's just keep them closed for a minute, okay? Now imagine, let's go ahead and do, you do it in your mind if you want to. Imagine you are on that road we saw a picture of earlier and you're going up to Jerusalem with Jesus. In fact, you're one of the 12. You devoted the last three of your years of your life following him all over the country. You witnessed the miracles. You heard the teachings. And you expect the promised kingdom at any moment, maybe even this Passover. But now on your way, on that road, Jesus pulls you aside. And this is what you hear. You hear, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death. And they will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and flog and crucify. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Okay, you can open your eyes. All of you back there, Jake, open those eyes. Okay, just thinking. <laughs> Did you hear what Jesus just said? Did you catch a glimpse of what was waiting for him at the end of the road? The reason he was born and the reason for everything he's ever done lies ahead at the very end of that road to Jerusalem. And it's not pretty, right? Because as your eyes were closed, if you, if you look at Matthew uh, 20, 18, we see that there's betrayal in that verse. Jesus, it says that Jesus was handed over to the scribes and Pharisees. That's betrayal. You don't get handed over to somebody by, a, by an enemy, Right? They already have you. You get handed over by a friend. Judas betrayed Jesus. This very act, the beginning at series of events that leads to his crucifixion, started with a friend. And have you ever thought how much that must have hurt or at least broke Jesus' heart? There was also condemnation in that verse. It said they would condemn him. This means that Christ would be sentenced to death by his own people. In John 1.9, you guys all know this verse. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. They condemned him. And the Hebrew people had somewhat of a, of, a, of a humane form of execution. We know it's stoning, right? So the criminal was taken outside the city and the accusers would follow and they'd pick up some rocks. And it was kind of humane because it was over rather quickly. I mean, once they got pelted with rocks, death was very soon after. And that was the Hebrew death penalty. But we read in 28 where he's handed over to the Gentiles. In this case, the Romans. And they were not interested in a swift execution at all. They were interested in suffering and pain and humiliation. 
That's why it's significant when you read in Matthew 20, verse 18, he was handed over to the Gentiles. There would be nothing humane about Christ's execution. Everything done to him at the end of that road would be specifically done to intensify the pain and suffering of his death, including another word up there that we read that would mock him. Now, you might say, what's so bad about mocking, right? Well, mocking attacks our, our emotional well-being, and, and I bet every one of us in this room has not shared the gospel or spoken up at a time when we knew we should speak up because we were afraid of being mocked. When the soldiers heard Jesus was a prophet, our Bibles say they blindfolded him. And that word, that Greek word, actually means to cover completely. So most likely they put a bag over his head and they punched him. And they said, hey, prophet, tell us, who prophesied now? Who punched you in the face? When they heard he claimed to be king, they twisted a crown of thorns, the very symbol of the curse, and they smashed it on his head, and they placed a purple robe on his body, and they mockingly bowed before the king. They spit in his face. They slapped him around a little, and then they proceeded to flog him that Jesus told his disciples. He'll be flogged, and that's just shorthand for for torture, because I think you guys are all familiar with with flogging, but when the Romans flogged somebody, they, they stripped them basically naked and tied them to a post to expose the raw back, and they took a cat of nine tails, and at the very end of the whip, the cat of nine tails, they would, they would put pieces of pottery or stone or something sharp, and, and as they whipped the back, it was designed to basically just tear the flesh from the bone. Jesus' back would just be ripped to shreds, Isaiah the prophet said, by his stripes we are healed. That's what was waiting for him at this end of the long road to Jerusalem. But Jesus isn't quite finished describing his death to the twelve. After the flogging, they would crucify him. They would take spikes and they would nail his wounded naked body to the cross and they would raise him up for the whole world to see. It was slow and painful. Jesus would struggle for every breath on the cross. Now, that is not an easy path to walk, but as he went up that road, he went knowing that that is what he had to do. And think about those Psalms of Ascent. Did he sing those as he's walking up that road that day, praising God for what lies before him? I don't know, but why did he do it? That we do know, because that was what it cost to redeem you and me. And that is why we should never take the blood of Jesus Christ lightly. And we should remember that in a few moments when we take communion. We should remember the broken body and the spilt blood because that was the price set forth from the foundation of the world. That's what it would take to redeem you and me and God. Take a God-man willing to make that sacrifice. So as Christians, we understand this, right? So I ask you again, why are you here? Is it solely to worship Jesus and honor him for what he's done for us, to learn more about him, to draw closer to him, or is there something more that you want? A different motivation is what we see next in Matthew chapter 20 from the mother of James and John. But before we look at her reaction, let's go back to that example of us being one of the 12 and we're walking with Jesus. And we hear 
that graphic portrayal, prophetic description of what awaits him, right? We hear that. What would your reaction be as a, as a disciple? Would you try to talk him out of it? Would you demand an explanation? Would you just kind of sit back and act like you didn't hear it? And hopefully Jesus would be wrong for once in his life. I've tried to put myself in their shoes and how I'd react to that statement. I don't know how I would react, but I can tell you this. I imagine and I hope I would not make such a selfish request as the mother of James and John that we read right here in Matthew 20, 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you desire? And she said to him, say that in your kingdom these two sons of mine shall sit, one at your right and one at your left. Now, is it me or does this request seem a little tacky? It's kind of like going to a dying person and saying, hey, can I have your stuff? Right? I mean, who does that? Think about it. Mother Zebedee steps up to Jesus with her sons right beside her and says, okay, Jesus, enough of the mocking and the flogging and the crucifixion and stuff. All that's about you. I want to know what's in it for me. Right? Can my two sons, James and John, can my boys, can they be princes in your coming kingdom? I mean, who does that? Right? Where's the compassion? And don't think for a minute that James and John were embarrassed by their mother, because Jesus' response here, it's pretty obvious whose idea it was. And Jesus does not answer her. Instead, in 22a, we read, but Jesus replied, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Now, at first glance, who do you think the you is in that passage? Well, it's not the mother. You might think it's the mother, but it's not. It's a plural form of the word. If this was a southern Bible translation, it might read something like, y'all don't know what y'all are talking about. Are y'all able to drink this cup? Okay, he's addressing James and John here. Like they were the ones who put their mother up to this request. And it becomes clear in the next verse, so just hold on. But he reminds them that his cup is filled with the mocking and the fog and crucifixion. And to them and many who come after, it seems like Jesus is just a land of opportunity. And they see their relationship with him as a chance to cash in regarding the future, right? But before they get too far ahead of themselves, Jesus says, slow down. And let me read you the fine print here. Are you able to drink from the cup I'm about to drink? And there's truth in that statement for us, too, that we need to realize this morning, right? That following Christ and being part of this church, it's not always going to be easy and pleasant. Sometimes it may even cost you a little sip from that bitter cup that Jesus is describing here. <clears throat> right? Being part of a church will not always leave you feeling on top of a spiritual mountaintop. If that's what you want, if you come to get that selfishly, then you're never going to be satisfied with our church or any church. To be quite honest, we must gather to worship and to serve. The rest of the verse reads, they said to him, we are able. He said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And after hearing this, the other ten disciples became indignant with the two brothers. Once again, 
Pretend you're one of those other disciples. Why would you become indignant with James and John here? Well, if they get the seats of honor in the kingdom, what does that mean for you? It means you don't get the seats of honor in the kingdom, right? You're going to be sitting somewhere else. So by verse 24, the 12 men who follow Jesus together all through life are ready to fight each other. That's what indignant means. There's indignant means there's anger behind that word. They're fighting mad over who's going to get these two spots. They want something from Jesus. And if it could happen to them, it surely can happen to us today. It might look like something like, I've been a Christian all my life. I've taught Sunday school for 10 years. It's time for somebody else to do something for a change for me. Somebody needs to do something for me for a change. I've been a Christian for 50 years. We've always been doing it this way for as long as I can remember. I don't care what anybody else says. We're going to do it my way. Church revolves, pardon me, around me. A church like that will never love others and make disciples. And as leaders, we talk about that often. We talk about the spiritual well-being of our church. And it's a difficult task. In my opinion, it's difficult because some of the best tangible indicators we have are attendance in normal times, attendance and offering. And, and while those are not helpful by themselves, they're tr- while those are, are helpful by themselves, they're not trustworthy figures all by themselves. If they were the only things we looked at from a church to see how we're doing, then the historic church probably would have fired the prophet Jeremiah, Right? So as hard as it is to measure a church's spiritual health, measuring your personal spiritual health is just as difficult. Because as Christians, we should be growing, right? But sometimes we find ourselves shrinking a little, backsliding a little bit. And Christ is about to explain to his ambitious, indignant disciples who seem to be shrinking back here a little bit that there's a way to measure your spiritual condition. And it's called a humility meter. In verse 25 to 27, it reads, But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles domineer over them, and those in high position exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wants to be prominent among you shall be your servant, and whoever desires to be first among you shall be your slave. So before we talk about the servant and the slave, is there anything wrong with wanting to do something great for the Lord? You know, obviously not, right? I mean, who, how many of us here today want our church to be the least effective church in Chatham? How many of you want the least number of people saved this year? I mean, none of us, right? None of us. So, so when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we don't want to hear the words satisfactory. I don't want to hear satisfactory. I want to hear what Rick always preaches about, right? I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. I want to hear the well done. The question is, how do we get that? And Jesus says right here, if you want that, if that's what you want, you don't get that by standing on the necks of others, right? You get that by being humble, and you get that by serving, And I hope by hearing those words from Jesus today, we're all asking ourselves a few questions, right? Am I serving the Lord to the best of my ability, maybe like I did in times gone by? 
You know, am I serving the Lord for the right reasons? Maybe the question is, is am I serving the Lord at all? Because it looks to me like these disciples were not listening. And based on their treatment of two blind men that they're about to encounter and their behavior at the Passover meal, which is just about 30 days from now, it looks like they didn't understand what Jesus was saying, but I hope we're starting to get it this morning. Reflecting back, remember in the Passover meal that we've, we've talked about before in John chapter 13, they're all sitting around a table and they're waiting to see who the foot washer will be. And traditionally, the least important person gets up, gets a basin of water, gets down on the floor, and washes people's feet. When none of them budged, the greatest among them, the creator of the universe, the one who stepped out of the glories of heaven to come to earth, the world he created, to enter into our world, he got up. He wasn't too self-important to slip out of his seat and fill a basin of water and wash his disciples' feet. That should humble all of us this morning. And Jesus says, if you want to be first, if you want to get the well done, you have to be a doulos. And that word means slave. You have to be a slave. That means if you want to know the attitude behind a great church experience, you don't come to get, you come to give. Or in the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew 20, 28, as we finish this section of scripture, Jesus says, just as the Son of Man <clears throat> did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Let me remember, if anybody should have been served, it should have been Jesus. Instead, he came to serve and to give. And in that verse, Christ gave his life as a ransom. That's a pretty special word that you should reflect on a little bit later. That's the word that's only used twice in the Bible, here and in Mark 10:45. It basically explains to us that there was a price on our head. There was a price that we had to pay due to our sin. There was a ransom associated with our life, and Jesus paid that for us. Something we could have never paid on our own, Jesus paid that for us. So with that in mind, honestly, can we say that church is about anything or anyone other than him? So circle back to that question one more time. Why are you here? And I hope you're thinking that I'm here after realizing that ransom is paid, that I couldn't pay for it on my own. He paid a debt for me I couldn't possibly pay. I'm here to worship him and serve him. Then you will have a satisfying church experience. And you would think the disciples would be on the right track and rush out of his presence and serve people, but they didn't. We read on, as they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him, and two people who were blind, sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. But the crowd sternly warned them to be quiet. Yet they cried out all the more, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And, and didn't we just read that Jesus told his disciples to serve? He came to serve. So therefore, in your mind, what should the disciples be doing? In my mind, they should be getting those blind men and taking them to Jesus, right? But they seem to be acting like kind of like secret service bodyguards and kind of keeping the crowd away from Jesus. And then the crowd themselves, we just read, they were keeping telling them, be quiet. 
The crowd was keeping people from coming to Jesus. And I just hope, guys, that that's not us. I know it's not, and I hope it's not. Us out in the real world. That through our daily behavior, somebody looks at us and they know we're a Christian, but boy, we sure don't act like it here and there. And that keeps them from coming to the Lord. I think the biggest form of hypocrisy and what keeps people from coming to our faith and into a relationship with Jesus is hypocrisy. And in order to make disciples, we have to be able to relate to people. And we have to go out there and compel them to come near. Because you guys know this, that people in our culture, we don't tend to clean ourselves for up first and then come to Jesus. Right? We all come to Jesus like these two blind men do. We're blind. We're lost. We're calling out for a Savior. They're hurting people all around us. We're not placed here in Chatham to be served. We're placed here in Chatham to serve. That's the secret to an awesome church experience. And Jesus stopped, 32, we'll finish this up, and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Funny, that's the same response to the question asked by the Zebedee's mom just a minute ago, what do you want me to do for you? And believe it or not, the miracle of sight given to these blind men is the last one we have recorded in the Gospels. Yes, Jesus curses a fig tree, and yes, we have the resurrection, but as far as we know, there's no more healings, there's no more demons being cast out, there's no more multitudes being fed, There's no more walking on water. For the rest of the book of Matthew, Jesus' eyes are focused on the cross. And imagine what our church experience would be like if ours were too. Two people can walk out of the same service, this service, and one can say, hey, it's a great morning. Love seeing everybody, great message, on fire for Christ. The other one can say, huh? That was a waste of my hour. One person was focused on Christ. They came to serve. The others were only focused on themselves and came to be served. We must check our hearts and determine which one we are. Second, after having their eyes opened, how do these formerly blind men respond? Do they say, thank you, Jesus, what else do you have for me? I mean, can you fill up my bank account or something too for me? You see it and I see it. They were healed. They followed him. And I bet if we were to ask them about their encounter with Jesus, their response might be very similar to the formerly blind man in John chapter 9 when he was asked the same thing. He said, once we were blind and now we see. And they never took their eyes off Jesus again. So if you want the secret to a really, really awesome church church experience, It has nothing to do with the size of the church. It has nothing to do about the version of the Bible that they use. It has nothing to do about the style of music, the number of services, or even, nope, the one delivering the message. If you come to love God and worship him sincerely for everything he's done for you, then your spirit will be refreshed. 
And if you come to love others, realizing that being part of a church family is being part of the family of God, and we all have this responsibility to care and love for one another, then church will not drain you. It will fill you up. And if your heart is to make disciples and serve rather than be served, then you will be blessed based on Jesus' own words and own explanation of how we're to conduct ourselves here and in the world. The question is, is are you here to get or are you here to give? Did you come for yourself or did you come for Christ? Those are the questions I'd like for us to leave with this morning as we think about our walk with the Lord and our fellowship with one another. Let's think of these things during our communion time together. I'd like for the praise team to come up.